0: Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 22 today, where we're going to be looking at Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples. Now the word Passover uh, for the, the Seder that is celebrated, Jews call this ceremony the Haggadah. It's a word that literally means to tell. And it comes out of Exodus chapter 13 8, where God said, you shall tell your son what the Lord God has done in bringing his people out of bondage. The Haggadah is the telling of God's redemption when the Jews were in slavery in Egypt, how God set them free and and brought them out of captivity. And as Jesus is celebrating the Passover in Luke chapter 22, he's not only looking back at God's great redemption from bondage, but he's going to be pointing the disciples and us today ahead to the coming ultimate redemption that comes through Jesus Christ when he was going to the cross. So I invite you to look with me as we read Luke chapter 22 and verses 1 through 13. It says now the feast of unleavened bread which is called the Passover was approaching the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put to death put him to death for they were afraid of the people and Satan entered into Judas who was called Iscariot belonging to the number of the 12 and he went away and he discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them they were glad and agreed to give him money so he consented and they began seeking a good opportunity to betray him apart from the crowd Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, "'Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it.' They said to him, "'Where do you want us to prepare it?' And he said to them, "'When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters, and you shall say to the owner of the house, "'The teacher says to you, "'Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples?' And he will show you a large, furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, when it says, when Jesus tells them, look for the guy carrying the water jar, we can think, well, gosh, that was really lucky that they found the right guy in the city. But you have to remember, in this day and age, uh, women were the ones who went to the well and drew the water. To see a guy carrying a jug of water through the city would have been extremely rare. And so they see this man, they follow him. He's, he takes them into this building. They go up to the upper room, and there they prepare the Passover. Now, preparing the Passover is a little bit different than you might think. Whenever we have company coming over, we often will clean the house, right? That's that's something we try to do, tidy up a little, hide things in closets, etc. But uh, what a Jew will do preparing for the Passover is they will actually go into the closets, in the pantry, in the refrigerator, and they will search for everything that has any bit of leaven in it. And they remove all of the, the leaven out of the house. And the reason they do this is because in, in Exodus twelve nineteen through 21, it says, Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your house. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. Now, as you'll probably recall, throughout the scriptures, leaven is seen as a symbol of sin. And so when it says they're to go in and remove all the leaven, it's a way to prepare themselves, to focus fully on the fact that they have some things in their lives that need to be removed. It's not just the bread itself, the the yeast and the leaven, but it's more examining yourself and removing uh, 11. We're told to do this when we come to the communion table. Later in this service, at the end, we're going to celebrate communion. And we're going to see that it comes out of the Passover uh, that is before you. And so what the Bible tells us is, as believers in First Corinthians eleven twenty six 26-29 is, for often as you eat this bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment on himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. And so that's why we confess our sins. That's why we remove the things from our lives that are not honoring to God, where we tell him we're sorry for the the mistakes we've made, the ways we've transgressed his his, uh, word. And so what's happening is they're removing the leaven from the house. It's preparing themselves. And so when this has been done, the head of the house will call the whole family together. He'll light a candle, and then he goes on a symbolic search of the house. It's not an in-depth one. He might just walk through the kitchen with this candle and everybody there. And then he'll take and sprinkle a few uh, crumbs of leaven on the floor. They take a wooden spoon and a feather, and they sweep those crumbs up into the wooden spoon. And then they take all of that outside, and they burn it. And so after he does this, he makes a pronouncement. He says, all manner of leaven which is in my possession is hereby annulled and counted as dust of the earth. So he's saying, just in case we missed anything, uh, it's, it's null and void. It's gone. And after he's prepared the home, the family's prepared the home, he gets ready to officiate the, the service. Now, what will often happen, some of them will have a full white robe that they put on because they're, they're wanting to remind themselves as the priest in the temple would go before uh, and prepare sacrifices He would put on different vestments Now I don't have a full white robe to put on But sometimes what is used Is a, a Jewish uh, prayer shawl like this And you remember we talked about this Earlier in our series in Luke Where the woman touched the hem of Jesus' garment And we talked about these talits That represent the 613 commandments And so as, as the man will put this on It reminds him of the law And and of God covering us and he'll cover his head sometimes they put on a miter which looks like what you see a pope or a bishop wearing kind of a larger crown like but most jewish men will wear something called a kippah or a yarmulke not a yamaha but a yarmulke and so they'll put this on and they do this because it reminds them that god is over them and they are in submission to him And so having prepared himself, the home is prepared, he's prepared, he will then take a piece of matzah. Now we're going to talk in depth about the matzah here in a moment, but this is what he has. And he'll hold it up and he'll say, behold the bread of affliction, which our fathers in the land of Egypt ate. Let all who are hungry come and eat it. All who are in need come and celebrate the Passover with us. And so it's an invitation to come to the table and then Because Passover, like all Jewish feasts, begin at sundown, there will be candles that are lit. And it's the lady of the house that will light the candles, so she'll cover her head. She may have a shawl or something. She puts it over her head, and as she's lighting the candles, uh, she says, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us by your commandments and has ordained that we kindle the Passover lights. And then the man will say, It is most fitting that a woman kindles the lights for we are reminded of God's promise that the Messiah, king of the world, would come not from the seed of a man, nor from the will of man, but from the seed of woman and by the will of God. You remember the virgin conception where the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and that's why they then read Isaiah seven fourteen, which says, Therefore the Lord himself will, come, will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and will bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And at this point, they come to the first cup in the service. You see that there are five uh, cups that are here in front of us. And so the first one is called the cup of sanctification. And the word sanctify means to set apart. So when you sanctify something, you're literally setting it apart. And so they will take this to say, we are setting apart this feast. We are setting apart this day as special. We are are being reminded how God's people, the Jews, were set apart uh, for, for his purposes. And so as this cup is taken, Exodus 6, 6 is read, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. He raises the cup and says, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. I want you to look at our passage here in Luke twenty-two, fourteen, because this is the cup that is referenced When it says, And when the hour had come, and Jesus reclined at the table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he takes the first cup as the Passover meal begins. And he says, Take and share this among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. And as we're looking there at Luke twenty-two fourteen, 14, it says they reclined at the table. And so we think in terms of tables like this one before us. But in the Middle East and in that day, they had very low tables. Oftentimes, it was merely a mat on the floor. Here's a picture of when I was in uh, Kazakhstan many years ago. You can see my hair was black back then. Uh, so... I'm I'm seated or reclining next to the mayor of uh, Aktau there in Kazakhstan, and you see that after he's done with the song, he'll put his his instrument away, and then his feet will go behind my head, and you see the person is already laying next to him. And so as you're sitting down to eat a meal, your feet are bare or in socks, and imagine how appetizing that is uh, as you're about to eat a meal and somebody's stinky feet are next to you. Now, in that day, remember, they wore open-toe sandals. They walked in dirt streets where animal droppings were, where open sewers were. So you can imagine just how uh, appetizing a meal could be if your feet had not been washed. And as you came into a a room to celebrate uh, any meal, there would be a, a servant who would meet you at the door. And he was the lowest of the low servants. He had the grimiest job. But there was no servant in the upper room to wash the the feet of the others. And as we're going to see next week when we get to Luke 22:24, the disciples were always arguing about which of them was the greatest. So none of them were willing to humble themselves and wash each other's feet. It's why you can look in John's gospel in John chapter 13 and it says in verses 4 through 5, Jesus rose from supper and he laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself about and then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel of which he was girded. Jesus was the Messiah, their master, their teacher. And he took the lowest place of a servant. And he said there in John's Gospel to do to each other what he had just done for them. And it's what he tells us today, that we're to, we're to serve one another, we're to humble ourselves, not to be battling for who's the greatest. And at this point in the dinner, they come to the actual supper. Now, here you see uh, a Passover seder plate that is often used, and there are different compartments with different foods. Through the seder, the story is told through two things: the food you eat and the four questions that we're going to cover. And so, the first food that is eaten is parsley, and you see it there in the kind of bottom right corner of the the slide, and it looks a little bit like a hyssop plant, which is what they use to dip in the blood and paint it on the doorposts of the home. So it was like a paintbrush of the day. But as you dip these uh, foods into, everybody will have a, a bowl in front of them of salt water. And all the foods that they eat, they're dipping them constantly into the salt water, and that's to remind them of the tears that were shed. Have you ever tasted your tears when you're crying? You know how they're salty? And so this is a reminder to them of what happened. And they'll dip this parsley into the water and they, they're reminded of the bitter tears that were shed when they were slaves in bondage. And then they dip it a second time to remind them of how God parted the waters of the Red Sea. When Pharaoh's army had them trapped and they were about to be wiped out, how God opened the waters so they could pass through and, and be safe. And so I told you there's four questions that are asked. And usually the youngest child at the, at the dinner will be asking the questions if they're able to read. And so the child says, why is this night different from all other nights? And the father replies, this night is different because of what the Lord did for us when he brought our people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, when he redeemed us with his strong hand and an outstretched arm. Now, God's redemption was not just from slavery. Remember, Jesus, as he's celebrating this Passover, is pointing ahead to the ultimate redemption that is going to come as he's preparing to go to the cross and give his life. And so this deliverance is, is a dual deliverance that Jesus is talking about when he's celebrating the Seder. And it came through the blood of a lamb. And this is why they read Exodus chapter 12, verses 3-7. through 7. There it says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are to each one take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to, to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep. Or from the goats, you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the door on the doorpost and on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. So the first thing we see is the lamb is to be a male without defect. Just as leaven was a symbol of sin, the sacrifice it had to be offered had to be perfect. It couldn't have any crippling features, any tumors, any blemishes, anything wrong with it. And so when we think in terms of Jesus being the Passover lamb, he was without sin. He was perfect. And so Jesus was able to fulfill this function. It's why in John one twenty nine, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, you'll remember he pointed and said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The scriptures tell us the lamb was to be kept whole and it was roasted and eaten. Now, if you read John chapter 19, you remember that as Jesus was being crucified on the cross, there were two other people dying that day with him, two criminals, one on either side. And the, the crucifixion that the Romans did was designed to be a very slow, torturous death. But as John chapter 19 is telling us what is happening, the Sabbath was coming. That was the day of rest. It was to be a day where the Jews did not want dead bodies hanging out in public. It was supposed to be a holy day where everybody rested. And so they didn't want anybody taking down corpses off crosses on the Sabbath. So they went to the Romans and they said, look, we need these guys to die quickly. And so you remember that the Romans went to break the legs of the people being crucified. And the reason they did that is because what would happen is as you were hanging on the cross... Remember, you, you had nails that were driven into your palms, and there were nails driven between your two feet, nailed into the wood. And so you were, you were just this excruciating pain, and as you were hanging down, you would start to suffocate. And so the way that you would try to breathe is you would push up on the nails in your feet, and you'd take a breath. And as you pushed up, there was excruciating pain in your feet. So it was this torturous death up and down, up and down. Well, if... Somebody came and broke your legs, you couldn't push up. And you would suffocate more quickly. And so this is why they came to break the legs of everybody on the cross. But you remember when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. And so they didn't break his legs. And that's because the Passover lamb, one of the requirements of the lamb was it was to be kept whole. There were to be no broken bones, no things like that could happen. And so, again, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy And the reason Jesus was already dead is because in John 19.30, it says, Jesus breathed his last. And as he did, right before that, he said, it is finished. You read John 19.30 in the English translation, it is finished, in most texts. But the original Greek language that was used there, the word found is teteleste. And it is a word that literally means paid in full. There's a double T-E beginning, which means it's in the perfect form. That means it's a completed action. The root word is teleo, which means to finish or pay a debt. Archaeologists have found Tetelestae written on the bottom of business documents. It's a word that literally means paid in full, account closed. And so what was happening is as Jesus died on the cross, what he said is the account is closed, the penalty for sin is paid in full. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so what Jesus was saying as he hung on the cross is, I have paid the penalty of death that you and I owe for our sins. He has closed the account. And to show that the payment was accepted, to show that the payment was good, you will remember that as Jesus died, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one tells us, the veil in the temple was torn in two. A few weeks ago, we were walked through the temple, and you'll remember that there were separation. There were signs of separation. The Gentiles were kept outside in the the court of the Gentiles by the balustrade. The women could come into the court of women, and then the men into the court of the Israelites. And then there was another barrier where the court of the priest was. And then you went into the inner temple, and there was again another separation called the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from everything. And once a year, the high priest went beyond that veil. He went behind it, carrying the blood of the sacrifice to put onto the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, called the halismos, a word that means satisfaction. And what happened is God, when Jesus said, the penalty has been paid in full, the sacrifice he as the Lamb of God offered was accepted, and God tore the veil from heaven to earth, from top to bottom, the scriptures say, Now, you may think of, well, I can take a piece of cloth and tear it. But there's a Jewish historian called Josephus who tells us that veil in the temple was three inches thick. He says you could tie a horse to either end, and it could not be ripped apart by two horses pulling. And yet God tore the temple veil, showing the separation of us because of our sin had been removed. In Exodus 12, 11 through 14, it goes on to say, Now you shall eat it in this manner. With your loins girded, with your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both of man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on your houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I go through the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast for the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. It's called the Feast of Passover, because the angel of death, when he saw the blood on the doorpost, passed over that home, and the people within it were saved from the judgments. And as we, as New Testament believers, think of what Jesus did, he being our Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we speak in terms of inviting Christ into our heart. We talk about how his blood washes away our sin. And the the image that we are given is that we are to take the blood of Jesus, the Passover lamb, and paint it on the doorposts of our hearts. And on Judgment Day, God will pass over those who have the blood of the lamb on them. And so what happens is, the, when we accept Jesus as our Savior, we are saved by his, his blood shed in our place. In the Seder, the second question is asked, on all other nights we eat our bread either leavened or unleavened. Why on this night do we only eat our bread unleavened? Now, we saw that answer in Exodus 12, 11. Remember, they were to eat it in haste. And if you've ever made bread, you know it takes time if you put yeast in the dough for it to rise. And, and so what happens is the father says, because our ancestors, the Jews in Egypt, had to leave in haste and, and take their bread with them while it was still flat, uh, we eat flat unleavened bread. Now, at this point, the father will pick up something called the matzotash. And the matzotash. I've put a picture up there so all of you can see this. It's a, it's a container. It's a single bag, as you can see. And as you open it up, there are three compartments like you see on the slide. And in each compartment, you put a piece of matzah. And so the, the father at this point will take the matzah tosh. He bypasses the first compartment. He doesn't go to the last one. But he comes to the middle compartment and he takes out a piece of matzah. And what he will do at this point with the matzah is he will take and he will break it. And he takes a part of the broken matzah, and there's a, another bag called the afikomen. And so here you see the afikoman, And uh, what they do, and, and the word on here, afikomen, literally means that which comes later, that which comes afterwards. And so they open the afikomen, and they take out a piece of linen, just a, a, a linen cloth. And they'll take a portion of this middle matzah that was taken and broken. And they take and they wrap it up. And they put it into the afikomen. Now, the father gets up from the table. He goes somewhere in the house. And he will hide this. He'll hide it somewhere in the house. So we'll just put it over here. Because it's that which comes afterwards. Now, at this point, um, the in the Passover meal... Um, the, the remaining questions get asked. The, the child will say, on all other nights, we eat any kind of vegetables or herbs. But on this night, why do we only eat bitter herbs? And on all other nights, we do not dip our vegetables even once, but why do we dip it twice? And the reply is given, we remember how bitter our, our ancestor slavery was in Egypt and are reminded of tears and the miraculous deliverance. And so, remember, we have this Seder plate, and we have these different foods. We've already talked about the parsley. Well, the next food that you come to is horseradish. And uh, Jewish rabbis refer to it as Jewish dristan. And the reason for that is, how many of you have ever eaten horseradish here? You know, here in San Antonio, we eat jalapenos when we want to clear our sinuses. Well, if you've ever eaten horseradish, you know what happens. Your nose runs, your eyes water. And so you can imagine everybody sitting around the table eating horseradish and they're all, you know, and so it's designed to make you weep and cry because you're remembering the bitter tears in Egypt. You're remembering how your people in past, uh, were, were under bondage in slavery. So everybody's sitting around crying and the father says, Uh, But God did not leave us in bitterness. But when our life gets bitter, bitterness can be uh, sweetened by God's promise of redemption. And then the next thing they eat there is called harash. It's this uh, sweet mixture of chopped up apples and raisins and nuts and honey. And you put whatever you want in there. It's really sweet. And everybody's digging into it. And then they go to the hard-boiled egg. Now, you'll notice it's kind of a brown color. And because what they do is they boil it in coffee. And they do this because everything is supposed to be reminding them of the past. And temple sacrifices were roasted. It's why you see the shank bone of the lamb up there, and it's also uh, browned. It's been roasted or or dipped in, in coffee or things in order to brown it so that you are reminded of the temple sacrifices. Now, because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, they can't offer sacrifices there anymore. And so the egg is there to remind them of the loss of the temple. And they dip it in the salt water and they eat it because, again, the reminder of tears. Now, the reason that they use an egg is because if an egg is fertilized and incubated, there's life inside it that will, even though you can't see it, it will one day be uh, brought forth. And while the temple has been destroyed, both the Old and New Testament tell us the temple will be rebuilt. There will be a millennial temple that will once again uh, be in existence. And so the Jews are looking ahead to the promise, the hope of the rebuilt temple that will one day be there. And again, the shank bone of the lamb is there to remind them they can no longer offer sacrifices. So this is a reminder to them of the sacrifices that once were offered. Now, offering sacrifices is very important to the Levitical law. Because as you read Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 tells us this. God says, behold, I have given you the blood on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is blood by reason of life that makes atonement. Now, if the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, you can ask if you have Jewish friends, ask them, how do you make atonement for your sins? And you'll find that there is no good answer. There's no good answer for them. Because for those who do not receive Jesus as their Messiah, they have no answer for how the atonement is made. But for those who have received Jesus Christ as their Savior, we have the answer. Because as you look at John one twenty nine, he saw Jesus coming and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus has paid the penalty in full. Remember, to tell us paid in full. He covered the, the the atonement that was needed for the sins once and for all. As you read the book of Hebrews, it tells us in Hebrews 10, 3 through 5, but in those sacrifices, that's the sacrifices that had once been offered in the temple, he says in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, not a, not a removal, a reminder, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he, the Messiah, Jesus, comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh and blood because there had to be a physical sacrifice offered where blood was shed. The book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. But it had to be a perfect offering, an unblemished lamb. The God-man Jesus who was without sin, and he gave his life to give us the gift of eternal life. The Apostle Paul, who had been uh, a high-up rabbi in the Jewish system, who studied under the famed Rabbi Gamal, said this in 1 Corinthians 5-7, For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. The word Christ literally means Messiah. The name Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua. It means Savior, Uh, The Hebrew word for Messiah is hamashiach. And so Jesus, Yeshua Christos, is the Savior Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Paul says he is our Passover. He is the one sacrificed. He is the one who gave his life so that we might have the gift of new life. Now... Something else that is seen in John's gospel is he tells us as Jesus died, it was at the very moment that the Passover lambs were being sacrificed there in the temple. You read the time stamp, they would blow the shofar and the Passover lambs would be sacrificed. And that's when Jesus said, It is finished on the cross. Now, as you're going through the Seder, you come to the second cup called the cup of rejoicing. And the cup of rejoicing is something we should do as we think in terms of God's redemption for us, what he did to save us. We, we can rejoice. And so they will take this cup and they will drink this at this point in the service. Now, uh, when they take this cup, another thing they do is they take their finger and they dip it in the cup 10 times. You know why they do it 10 times? How many plagues were there? 10. 10. And so they'll take and they'll dip their finger in and they'll, they'll kind of shake it into their food as they go through the, the plagues. They'll say blood, flies, lice, and they go through all ten plagues ending with the death of the firstborn in each home that did not have the blood painted on the doorpost. Now, remember, the Jews had to act in faith and obedience. They were told, slay the lamb, take and paint the blood on the doorpost. But if you did not follow through and believe what God had said to do and did it in obedience, the angel of death would have destroyed those even in a Jewish home. And so for us as believers, the same thing applies to us. We can know all about Jesus. But unless you actually receive him as your savior and paint the doorpost of your heart, so to speak, with the blood, on judgment day, God will not pass over you. You will suffer the judgment of the second death, as we find in the book of Revelation. But for those of us who have received Jesus as our savior, what John 5.22 tells us is, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes my word and him who sent me has passed out of death and into life. God offers you the gift of eternal life. If you will turn from your sins into Jesus as your Savior, to recognize you owe a penalty called death. And you can't pay it, but Jesus paid it for you. And if you receive him, you'll be saved. That's what Romans ten nine tells us. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And so he offers us this gift of eternal life. Now, at this point, the father invites everybody to drink of this second cup, rejoicing that, the, uh, that they did not, the, the Jews did not suffer the plagues and they were set free from Egypt. And we can rejoice today because we know who Jesus is and what he did for us. Now, at this point, the full meal is eaten. Everything is done. And then remember, there was something called the Afikoman. And so the father tells the kids, okay, go find the Afikoman. And they scatter throughout the house. They search and one of them will find this. And they come back to the table and they present it. And the the father will give them a reward. He'll give them some money. It may be a trinket, you know, some little toy or it could be a treat. And then what he does at this point is he takes out the matzah. And he will then break it. And he will share it with everybody at the table. Now, as we look in terms... This is also, when the afikomen comes back, it's also when there's the afikomen. And when it comes back, they come to the third cup called the cup of redemption. We've had the first two cups, and at this point in the meal, you have the afikomen and the cup of redemption. And I want you to look again at our passage in Luke. Because in Luke 22:19 through 20, this is the cup. It says, and when he had taken some bread, this is the bread from the afikomen, He says, when he has taken some bread and uh, he broke it, he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. This is the cup of redemption. He took this cup and he said, after they had eaten this cup, which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my body. When Jesus gave us the communion service, brothers and sisters in Christ, he didn't invent something new. He took what the Jews already knew and he translated it for them. And he says this, the cup of redemption is my blood. This is my body that is broken for you. Now, as you think in terms of these elements... Again, if you have Jewish friends, I've I've talked to a number of rabbis over and over, and I've said to them, I said, you know, as we look at these things, um, what does it what does it mean to you? And you know, as you, I, I said I'd mention what the matzah means. I want you to look at the matzah up there. You notice that there are these kind of burn marks, and there's something called uh, midrash. It's the rabbinical commentaries, and it's very it's it's their kind of guidebooks. And rabbinical midrash says that there are things that the matzah is to specifically have. And they say there has to be these striped marks, these kind of burn marks on the bread. They say it has to be pierced through. As you hold it up to the light, you can see through it. It has to be unleavened. Remember, representing as having no sin. And so as you talk to a rabbi and you say, why why all these things? Every single one I've ever talked to has said to me, it's tradition. It's tradition. And I say, you know, I think there's more than tradition here. Now, I'm always very respectful when I talk to them. But I always say, you know, I believe what we see is what the Bible is telling us. Because as you read the prophet Isaiah, there's a passage called Isaiah chapter 53. And it's been labeled as the forbidden passage because in many synagogues and temples today, it will not even be allowed to be read anymore. Because as you read Isaiah 53, it points to the coming Messiah, And it creates a lot of questions because as you read Isaiah 53, 5, it says, but he, this is referring to the coming Messiah, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Isaiah wrote that prophecy more than 600 years before crucifixion was even invented. The Romans weren't even walking the face of the earth at the time. And God revealed through the prophet Isaiah what the Messiah would suffer. He would be pierced. Nails would be driven through his hands and feet, a spear into his side. By his stripes, as Jesus was beaten, we would be healed. Remember the matzotash? Again, I've asked them, what, what does this matzotash really mean? You have one bag, three compartments... Uh, And they say, oh, well, we have several explanations. Uh, That represents the high priest, the Levites, and the people. Other rabbis will tell you, well, it's the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Some say, well, it represents the manna from heaven. You had the the bread that was given, and before the Sabbath, there would be a double portion, and then you have the last bread representing uh, the Passover. Those are all great explanations, But I say, then why do you go in and you take the middle piece out, you break it, you wrap it in linen, and then you hide it away, and then you bring it back later, and you share that among yourselves? And their answer? It's tradition. And I say, again, very respectfully, may I offer you a different explanation? I say, in the Bible, God reveals to us, and it's not just in the New Testament, it's the Old Testament as well. You read in the very beginning in Genesis, God said, let us make man in our image. God is three in one. I say, you have God who is singular, but in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Why is the middle matzah taken out? Because it represents the Son. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that God left his throne in heaven. He took on flesh and blood. He revealed himself to us in human form so that he could ultimately go to the cross where he could give his life as the sacrifice. Remember, he was pierced. He was striped, as the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 53, to die for us. The Bible says he was wrapped in grave clothes. He was placed in a tomb and he was hidden away For three days. And after three days. He rose from the dead. And he appeared to others. Now Isaiah's prophecy is even more specific than just the way he suffered and died. It also tells us he would be with criminals in his death. Remember he was. Says he would be with wicked in his death. He had criminals crucified on either side. That same prophecy says he would also be with a rich man in his death. When Jesus' body was taken off the, to- off the cross, he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man. Do you see the intricacy, the specificity that God revealed of the promised Messiah and who would come? And I say the afikoman represents how Jesus was buried and he was resurrected and he was brought back and he was shared among us. And do you remember what we're looking at here, the Passover Seder where he gave us communion? And what he said is this, this that was taken away and buried and brought back. This is my body. And this cup, the cup of redemption, is given for you. He says the new covenant. The new covenant is that it is my blood. The fulfillment of the Old Testament law is in what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so this is what the Passover reveals to us. Now, knowing these things should cause us to rejoice, to praise God. And that's what this fourth cup is. This is called the cup of halal, a word that literally means the cup of praise. And at this point in the, in the Passover, they will celebrate as the meal is coming to a close, praising God for his past redemption. Now, there's a fifth cup here, which is called the cup of Elijah. And the cup of Elijah is is there will be another setting at the table where they'll have a place for the prophet Elijah to come because the scriptures tell us that Elijah will come to uh, announce the coming of the Messiah. Now, Jewish tradition believes that Elijah will show up on Passover, that he will come. So at the end of the meal, the child will get up, will go to the door and open the front door, and he or she will look out, and everybody at the table will say, Has Elijah come? And the child will close the door and say, no, and they'll all say, next year in Israel, right? Brothers and sisters in Christ, Elijah has come. We saw that back in Luke chapter 1. Because as you look at Luke chapter 1 and verse 17, Jesus Christ, as he pointed to John the Baptist, he said, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. The role of Elijah is to come as the forerunner to announce the coming of the Messiah. And John did that as he pointed to Jesus in John 129 and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're coming to the communion table now. And as we come to this table, I hope you have a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he did for us. I hope you see that God's plan revealed from the very beginning to the present has been fulfilled in every minute detail. God said that his son would come all the way back in the book of Genesis in order to die. He gave the prophecy that the the son of man would, would crush the head of the serpent, but the heel of the son would be bruised pointing to how Satan thought he won when Jesus died on the cross. But Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. He rose from the dead. He came back. And his body is what it is that was given as a sacrifice to save us. So as we come to the table now, what we're reminded of is how Jesus died to pay the penalty of death for our sins. In a moment, you're going to have some elements pass. There will be a small piece of bread representing his body. It's not going to look like the matzah here, but it's unleavened. It represents uh, Jesus being the sinless sacrifice for us. You'll have a cup of grape juice, and it represents his blood that was shed for us. It is this, the cup of the new covenant, the cup of redemption that we are taking. And so if you're here this morning and you've never come to faith in Jesus, and this morning your eyes are open to see who he is, the promised Messiah, the one who died, the one who gave his life for you, and you're ready to receive his death in your place, I invite you to take the bread and take the cup and hold those things. We'll celebrate together in a moment. We'll take all the elements together. But I want you to take those and say to God, God, I recognize I'm a sinner. And I recognize I owe a penalty of sin called death. I believe, Jesus, you went to the cross. You took my place. You died to cover it. Remember, he said, it is finished, paid in full. But it is only applied to the account of those who will apply the blood to the doorpost of their heart so that one day God will pass over you in judgment. And so if you've never received Jesus, but you're ready today to do that, take the elements and hold them. And for the rest of us who have received Jesus in the past, who already know him as our Savior, this is a time to look at our lives, to prepare our hearts, confess our sins. Ushers, will you service, please? And we'll take the elements together in a moment. In Luke 29:19 through20, we read, "And when he had taken some bread and he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, "This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me." In the same way, he took the cup, the cup of redemption. And after they had eaten, he said, This cup, which is poured out for you, is a new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of him. Will you join me, please, as we pray? Lord God, we thank you for your great love for us. Love demonstrated, as Romans 5.8 says, in that while we were yet sinners... You, Jesus, died for us. You loved us and left your throne in heaven. You came to earth. You not only sat at that table and served those as you washed the disciples' feet, you humbled yourself even further, becoming, as Philippians tells us, to the point of dying a death on a cross. Jesus, you knew what was coming. Judas got up from the table to go and betray you, and you still went to the Garden of Gethsemane willingly, Giving your life. You asked, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but you knew that was the way of redemption for us, and you willingly went to the cross and gave your life. And we thank you and worship you for that, Jesus. We thank you for the great gift of new and eternal life that came through the life you gave on the cross to save us. May we who are recipients of your grace, Be messengers now of that grace to go into the world and share the good news of who you are and what you've done to save us. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We stand and sing this closing song of worship.